Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. The radio and TV version of the show air in over 12 states. This includes both coasts and Silicon Valley. The show also airs in the UK, Caribbean, and Australia. For full show times, plus past episodes of the TV and radio show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. We just launched a free online community to connect past guests, listeners, and others. This community will allow you to network, chat on Slack, or get help with anything else, and a lot more. If you're interested in joining the community, buying some merch, sponsoring the show, or signing up for the newsletter, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show, honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jason Troy. He's an executive coach. Jason, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for me, having me on the show and speaking to your fantastic tribe. <laughs> Very cool, man. Yeah, I, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think um, what you're doing and have done is very really kind of interesting to me and some of the stuff that we'll get into later I've been kind of thinking about a lot lately personally so curious to get your thoughts on some things but maybe before we get into all that fun stuff let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up sure so I grew up in the Midwest in Chicago Illinois so it was a fun place to live and grow up and you know, I'll be at all the four seasons and a lot of cold. <laughs> sure, man. Sure, I get that. So you, you went to university. What did you take and why? So I went to Indiana University and I started off in business. And I didn't love some of the classes I was taking. I wasn't as passionate about it. So I ended up taking enough to get a minor But I also went and studied history. I got a a degree in history. I got minors in religious studies of all things because it really wasn't religious studies. It was just more literature and learning about different religions and people's way of thinking. And a minor in economics and Spanish, too. So it was a a lot. Interesting. Was there like a defining kind of moment that kind of got you interested in history or, or how did that come to be? I just, I think it's just all, I, I'm such a curious person. Okay. And I think understanding how things work, where things came from is just part of who I am. Okay. And I think it goes to what I'm doing right now. And sure. I think curiosity is probably one of the most undervalued traits in society today. And Agreed. I think it's probably one of the most important one as you get farther and farther along in your professional career, if you don't have it, um, it's going to be very difficult for you to be successful. No, interesting. Okay, so you got your law communications degree, correct? Yeah, I went to grad school because I originally had been thinking that I wanted to potentially go on that. And it's really interesting because as I work with other clients and people you know, your parents have a lot to do with that choice. And my mom is in the medical field. And so, you know, my mom was always saying to me, oh, you should be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer, right? And not wanting to rebel a little bit, I guess. I was like, okay, well, let me do something. The the other one of the two, right? And so I, I looked at it and I thought to myself, some things that I might enjoy doing would be crisis management. So I wanted to find a school that really was good on the communication side, because as I spoke to some people, they're like, well, law is one thing, but really how you handle the communication and interacting with other people is ultimately going to make or break most of these situations. So I picked Syracuse because it had the number one communication school. And Oddly, it is the number one TV, radio, and film school in the entire U.S. Most of the people in Hollywood and um, ESPN announcers and all the rest of them all from Syracuse. Interesting. I didn't know that. Wow, that's fascinating. So yeah. you, you get out of um, school. You've had a crazy career. 
career up until kind of what you are, what you're doing now. But do you maybe want to walk us through your career kind of up until you, um, up until sure. kind of what you're doing now, and maybe some career highlights along the way? Sure. So I, you know, my second year in law school, you know, what you do is you get an internship, but it's way more than that because, okay. you know, a law degree, most people don't know it's a doctorate degree. I mean, also don't necessarily understand that. So it's a pretty intensive process. So the internship in your second year is a bridge to getting a full-time job in, you know, typically a law firm type setting. It could be in a corporate setting, but most people go into law firms. So you have to go through a pretty intensive interview process for every job. And I went into New York City and I was interviewing for jobs. And, you know, I had spoken to a lot of the third year law students to really get a better understanding of, you know, not only the environment, some of the people I'd be interviewing with, the questions to ask, all these different things so I could maximize my opportunities. So I had a pretty good list of things that I should be doing. And of course, the one time, one thing that I didn't really ask was they all said at the end, you know, finish up on some easy softball question, something to end the interview on a high note. And I didn't ask anyone really what would be a great question to ask. I just assumed it would be really easy, but it was a very naive thought. And the question I asked, which was, are you happy? Interesting. And it's amazing how when you ask 30 some super smart people from, you know, partner level down to an associate level, they have a very hard time answering that question. It was the longest me to ask a question and then to answer in every single interview I had. Okay. And people's eyes were darting around. And so I really start to, I really got worried and I didn't notice it till I was pretty far into the interviews. But then all of a sudden I started thinking to myself, but this is the same in every interview I'm having. And isn't that scary that these people are having to think about it and their eyes are darting around and they're doing things that they did not do in the other questions that I asked them. So it was highly out of character compared to what the rest of the interview had been going. Interesting. So I thought to myself, this may not be something that I really wanted to do. And then the more I dug into it, there was a whole host of other things. So I decided the other piece of it was technology was really something that was emerging. And I was like, well, I'd really love to do that. And the place to go would be, you know, San Francisco and the Silicon Valley. So sure. I went out to Silicon Valley, you know, I got to work, I started a marketing agency and I got to work with Steve Jobs at Pixar Interesting. and at Apple, Reed Hastings, the now CEO of Netflix early sure. on when Netflix didn't really even matter. Um, I got to work with a whole host of Mark Cuban when his company got acquired by, you know, Yahoo. Sure. Very cool. The billionaire. Yeah. So there's a lot of different experiences I had with a lot of other people as I was working in there, which was really fun. And then I just, I had an, a, a challenge going on, which is that I had a, several of my friends whose parents passed away in very like, crazy circumstances. So I felt like I really, if somebody had my mom, I would really feel guilty. And I had not been living anywhere around her since I had left for college, essentially. So okay. I got back to Dallas and what's funny about getting back to Dallas too, is I got a job in Austin because I didn't find anything here I liked. Okay. And then the person who I got the job from handed me the offer letter and said, I have a better job for you. I'm going to drive you to another interview. And he drove me to another interview and I got a job in a startup company that was based or had an office in Dallas. And so that's how I ended up moving to Dallas. And so I wow. went through the whole, yeah, that's crazy. And then I went <laughs> through a process of taking the company private public. So that was a, a pretty crazy process in and of itself. And then I pivoted and went to a really big company at HP and worked there for four years. Wow. And that was really interesting. And that was, I, I came in a company probably at the worst time because it was on a downward slide. So okay. it was not a lot of fun to be in it. I mean, I learned a lot, but I wasn't in the old HP that people think about. I was sure. in the sort of new version, which was not near as exciting as the old one was. So 
from there, you know, I just had thought to myself, you know, I'm just kind of sick of being in this just political place. I didn't really ever find a home that I loved. You know, perhaps if I did, it would be a different story, but I didn't. But I love the people part of it. I love the problem solving it. Um, I love different pieces of it. So I just started to dabble in coaching on the side and okay. doing it as a side hustle. And I did it solving a really small problem for people is that I had built a really great social life when I moved to Dallas and meeting people and I didn't know anyone. And so I turned it into this little idea of how to build a great social life in 30 days or less. Interesting. And I took the idea and I marketed it to some people who had existing businesses that I could leverage. So I wouldn't have to pay for anything, just split whatever we were doing. Okay. But that was, that was a zero like overhead cost. And it's something I could try and if it didn't work, I could walk away and just can do what I had been doing. That's so I, yeah. So I did that for a couple of years and then, you know, as I started doing it, I realized that part of what the the challenge is for some people was not just the execution of it. It was the internal issues, right? It was the psychology. It was blind spots. It was mindset, other things that were getting in the way of them replicating what I was doing, right? And I also had some people come to me at that point for business things as well. So it started to change, and I realized that business and solving problems for people on leadership, performance, managing teams, career progression, um, doing a lot of other things were things that interested me a lot more. And obviously, they solve bigger problems, and there's a lot bigger opportunity. So I slowly morphed that over. I was, re you know, on a same point, I started researching and said I need to create some sort of branding or book and the relationship piece was something that I had been doing a lot of research on. So I continue to do that and publish my book, social wealth. It's done really well. And then, you know, I've been off on my journey and I did a TEDx speech last year, which was interesting on, you know, how to get coworkers to like each other. And my premise was, is that, you know, you performance on teams and organizations are not where they should be. And it's because the prop, the proper foundations have not been laid. And I think there are some philosophies that aren't as well, but you do see them in top teams. And for example, when I was going and doing researching, sitting in um, large organizations, meaning, you know, Fortune or Forbes top 10 workplaces sure. that are the best places to work rated. If you look at a sales team's, right, from the best down to the worst sitting in teams, you'll see the best teams doing things significantly different than the other teams that have nothing to do with knowledge or processes or any sales-related things. It's how they engage with each other. It's how they interact. It's how they're being helpful. It's how they treat each other. Those things are radically different over teams. And so I thought to myself, if doing all this, that there's a way to share this with people and also to create a game, which I did this game cards against mundanity, which could build deep connections with people in minutes that could change the trajectory for teams, no matter what organizational size, no matter what's going on. And you can use them with external people like a salesperson could use it with a prospect or an existing customer or anyone outside of it and have it be effective. Interesting. So walk me through some of the the things that you're you're getting out of these teams or you see these successful teams do. And then is that kind of in, in the card game or how does that kind of work into all that? Yeah, so, so what happened is, is that when I was sitting in these teams, the one premise that I started to have is that like, and when you look at the research, right? Sure. You'll find that most of the people talking about culture and team building, they actually aren't the researchers looking at the team, doing the analysis. There are, they are successful people backing out of how they got somewhere, okay, which is never a great recipe because like, for instance, it, if you look at Elon Musk, you could say, wow, that guy's really successful starting all these companies. But mm -hmm. you could equally say to him, you could, why don't you have production way past where you currently are, right? Like, Interesting. There's fundamental managing and hiring issues. So why haven't you got there yet, right? 
And, and when you look at and now, even if you look at people asking the questions of him, he won't answer that. But that's the question. When you go to a billionaire, you, the question is, why did you make 10? And if they don't have a really yeah, good answer, why they don't why they made 10 billion versus one, they really don't know what's going on. And they haven't done the research. All they've done is backed out their success to try to explain it to build themselves a brand rather than doing the hard research and saying, okay, like why do teams, are they more successful than others? Is it because they're smarter? Well, that's what people would tell you. But when you look at the research, that's zero of the research states that, right? And Google did a great research called Project Aristotle. And that's one that someone wants to look it up is a lot of the basis of what I've been doing. Uh, for the team building. Now, there's a lot of other research, but this one highlights many of the aspects inside of it. And what Google did in 2012 was they wanted to look at how can we build the perfect team, right? How can we build the highest performing team and scale it across so we can up all of our metrics considerably? Interesting. Because what they found was the top sales teams were doing significantly better, obviously, for reasons, but they couldn't figure out why. Okay. And so they had hired researchers. They looked at 250 different pieces of data. They interviewed hundreds of people, and they were very confused. And then they came across the solution as far as they saw it and the answer, and it wasn't intelligence. It wasn't individual performance. It wasn't whether you went to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. The answer was way simpler and very complex to create, which is psychological safety. Okay, what do you mean and by that? So psychologically safe environments have three characteristics that ones that are not don't have, right? Okay. And one is people know each other on a very deep personal level. So it dispels the myth that there is some work-life like separation. Okay. In fact, what you'll see is people will know a lot about people on a team. And, and I found that to be true, whether the team is large or small. And the reason that that matters is, is when you get to know people at that level, Think about the people in your life that you care about the most, right? Sure. Do you not compromise better with them? Do you not resolve conflicts? Do you not communicate better? Do you not let little things go? I mean, all the rest of these things in your personal life are the same things that you do in business. Aren't you more positive with you than you would be a complete stranger or someone you don't care about at all, right? Well, Interesting. that's piece of it. The other part of it is that they are much more free to come up with crazy ideas and risk-taking and be supported by the group by suggesting ideas, doing things, and really seeing failure as part of the process and not even really seeing it as failure. They look at it as lessons learned, and that's how they operate. Because one of the other pieces of research they've looked at is that the most successful teams make a significant, they actually fail significantly more than teams that aren't as productive. But what they do is they take the failure pivot into a lesson learned and then create it into a success. Interesting. But they do make way more. And the other part of it is they ask clarifying questions, right? Okay. And that means that if they don't understand something, they don't walk out of the meeting assuming things. They get a lot more clarity on what it is someone wants, what is it that they need, how to deliver it to them. Um, for instance, what communication style do you prefer? Email, text, phone call, and in that information, do you want only a high-level summary? Do you want a ton of details, right? So they will do things like that that other teams will not do, right? And okay. what Google found is that in the absence of psychological safety, the other four characteristics that they found are not in any of the highest performing teams. Zero. Interesting. So psychological safety is the foundation for every successful team. And sitting in other teams, all of that is what I saw, right? You'll see things, people sharing information. You'll see them deeply engaged in team meetings. You will not see them texting or emailing or doing it. I mean, you'll see it occasionally, but you'll see it significantly less frequently. Sure. 
you'll see them actually having direct eye contact, right? Being very engaged, um, knowing other people's emotions really well. The other thing that I saw that, again, is in a lot of the research is that you, you'll see if there are 10 people in a team, you will see all 10 people talking. And I don't care whether they're an introvert or not. Now, they may not all talk equally, right? But it'll sure. be pretty close, right? But in the other teams, you'll find a couple people will drone out the other people. Yeah. And you will not see everyone engage. And you'll see people not sharing. You'll see people texting more, emailing, doing other distract, not getting eye contact to the person talking near as much. And the funny thing is, is when I went in and told some of the managers about this and the teams, they didn't have any idea this was going on, right? They thought it was a way different ideas. And I think there were probably, as I was doing this, I think there were probably a bunch of them that didn't believe me. Really? Because they thought it was, yeah, I think they thought a lot of times that it was just the performance of the team was better because they got it. They were more dedicated. They were more whatever. And then when I did as an experiment, was I had one of my friends um, that I know that's managing several large sales teams take off two people off his medium performing team and put them on the highest performing team for 90 days. And I said, let's just run an experiment to see if this is true or not. Okay. And each of the salespeople, um, revenue went up 20% over what they were doing and they didn't have any additional training. Zero. Zip. And he's really surprised at this. And now you got to take someone who's motivated and want to do it, right? But sure. even then, environment plays a huge role in what's going on. So no matter if you're working on a five-person team or you're working on a 5,000-person team, having a foundation of psychological safety is the most critical aspect because otherwise what happens is you just won't see people near as engaged because they can't take risks. Because if they do and fail, they'll see evidence where other people have gotten hurt in their career, gotten Uh, taken down, right? So even if you are right four out of five times, that fifth time will be crippling. So it's not worth sticking your neck out. So then you won't do things that you would normally do, and it slows down innovation, creativity, the ability to problem solve and everyone operating at the highest level, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and then you'll, the last thing that you'll see, too, is that you see people having side conversations afterwards, right? Talking uh, about the next deal, helping each other, like, hey, can you help me on this project? And they'd be like, sure. And then when I talked to some of them, they, they, I asked them, I said, so are you, you know, if that person sells, are you getting any piece of the deal? And they're like, no. But they asked me for help, so why wouldn't I help them? Right? And that was the reaction. But that's not the reaction you get on other sales teams as you go down from the best teams downward, right? And their attitude is much different, right? So I had a client sure. here in D- Dallas who's got a top salesperson, and he, I asked him, like, I think it was like a month ago. I said, okay. so how's the summer going? And it was a Friday. He said, oh, I had a great and i had a great day today and then i asked why why'd you have a great day and this is a manager right he okay. was like well i got on the phone and i was making some cold calls and i was like you're a manager i'm like why would you make cold calls he's like well i love it because fridays are days when people love taking my phone calls and i was like really shocked and i dug down to it and essentially he said to me one is that it keeps me sharp Interesting. and it keeps me engaged okay. and if i do that and my team sees it then they're going to want to do it because they know I don't have to when I'm still doing it on my own, right? Interesting. And also, his mentality was super positive, and he looked at things on the bright side. He said to me, oh, the summer's the best time for me to sell because no one else is calling. And sure. so people are much more open and amenable, and even I can close deals faster than I can other times of the year. And I thought to myself, that's counter to what most people believe. Totally. But if a whole team believe that, Imagine what you could do in your slowest quarter. Interesting, yeah. So I'm curious, though, to step back a little bit here. You, How do you actually work with teams to actually implement that kind of, you know, like this whole process? Because 
I, I agree with you that I think it's super important. And it, it's always kind of, just as we were talking, like I remember just working with a few people years ago where you would go out with them kind of socially, like it'd be like a work social function just for drinks after work or something. And like a couple of the people were almost like a 180 from how they are in the office. And I was just like, I, you're almost like you feel like you don't even know that person, right? Because you're like, who are you yeah. right now? And I don't mean it mean, it's just like, who, what, what happened? Like, how come you're not this fun person at the office, but you are like outside of the office, right? So how do you kind of work with your team to actually implement some of this stuff? So I think, you know, you're right. And I think it's a lot of the myths, right? And mm -hmm. again, I think it's a lot of the things that people have made up and okay. the stories that they've created, not based on research. So I think what you have to do, and so when I'm giving this presentation on like how to maximize team performance sure. and innovation to people, what I do is, and I found it can work either way, is okay. I'll either go through and play the game, and I'll explain to that in a minute why sure. that works, and then go into the why, or many times I'll start off and just give the why and then play the game. Okay. And I think the thing is, is once you start going in front of a lot of smart people and sharing them the details like we've spoken about today, and there's many more of them, sure. and I show the ROI, like Harvard did a – 10-year research study on companies with a strong culture and it's companies that had more psychological safety versus companies that did not. And they looked at 200 of them wow. that the companies that did grew revenue 765% versus 1%. Oh, wow. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Right. And you look <laughs> at um, call center training, this company called YPRO over in India, and they okay. did. They wanted to up call center retention because they were losing so many people. When they did one simple process for one hour in the call training of getting people to interact with other people that were being hired, asking personal questions, and getting to know each other, they increased retention by over 200%. Wow. When, when you say personal it, questions, like what, what types of questions? Uh, they might ask like questions, you know, I don't exactly know the list of questions okay. that they used in that particular thing, but the, the deep personal questions it, are questions like, tell me about the most important lesson you've learned over the last year. Like, tell me about okay. an, an experience growing up that you think was really important to you. Okay. I got you. And, you know, the other piece of the research that they found is the companies that use, that do things more about trying to elicit their employees, managers, and leaders to talk about more deep personal things and okay. create fun things that they can do are four times more profitable than companies who do shallow fun things such as going out for happy hours or playing foosball or buying drinks, food, whatever it may be. Okay. So it really makes a significant impact on the organization as a whole. And it makes sense, right? Because the more information, again, I go back to your personal life. If you look at the people that you care about the most, those people you know the most about and you know the most personal information about. Sure. So if we replicate that into a work environment, that is going to create much more urgency and need to help that person be successful, to have them succeed, to not to want to disappoint them, do a lot of the things that will make people work harder, longer, take more care in their work, all the rest of these things, which then produce significantly higher results, right? Sure. It's not about all having A players. You could have a bunch of, you could have B players and they looked at this, right? They've done, they, they showed a, I was reading an article a while ago on the Harvard debate team losing to a bunch of prisoners and all the prisoners had were books. They couldn't even look at the internet and they lost and they got killed in the debate. In fact, right. And you're thinking, how is that possible? Harvard is the number one debate team, right? So sure. how could that possibly happen? Right. Well, exactly what I've been talking about today, right? They created a whole other environment for them even in prison in that environment to go on to take down a juggernaut in something that they should not have been able to even remotely come close to, right? I mean, even on the, their best day.
Interesting. But it's possible if you create it. So, but I think you've got to go into people in an organization and you've got to share the why. Because when I go in, the most skeptical people are usually international people because they've seen all this U.S. team building thing and they're like, uh, oh, this stuff doesn't really work, right? Interesting. But once I show them the number and the data and I go through it and I talk to them about it and logically you start working people through why these things happen and what goes on, the light bulb goes on their head, right? And they're like, wow, this makes a lot of sense, right? And then I have them play the game and the game – is something that I wanted to create because I'm like, okay, all this information is great. But when I was doing the research, the problem I had was figuring out the application of it, right? Because how do you create psychological safety quickly? And it's not, it's not so easy, right? I mean, yeah. it's the hard question, sure. right? I mean, NASA dealt with this too. NASA, I was talking to the lead astronaut on the last space mission. Interesting. He was in Dallas and I got to go to a private event. And he was telling me the biggest thing that NASA has done in the last decade to improve the quality of their missions and, and the quality of their investigations and the science they were doing was to do psychological safety. They had to get the astronauts working together better because they really didn't work well together. So the training part of it that they've revolutionized is the psychological safety part of it. And they're doing pretty radical things like having them go out you know, in the desert for a week and have to work together okay, in tough situations, sure. right? So they get to know each other better sure. and they can resolve conflicts and issues before they go up, right? And there's yeah, a whole guess, set yeah. of things that they do, but it's made a world of difference. Now, in a company, you can't do that, obviously. Sure. But what you can do is get to know each other quickly. So as I was doing this, I came across some research study by a professor, his name's Arthur Aaron. Okay. And back in 1997, he was trying to figure out how can we make deep, intimate relationships with people. And in some ways, he was either looking for love or creating best friends, like by snapping your fingers. And, you know, I, every time I tell the beginning of the story, I ask people, do you think this is even possible? And people are like, there's no way, right? I mean, it took me sure. decades or years of time to find someone who I thought was my best friend. And I say to them, well, that's all a story. Because after I tell you what I'm going to tell you, you're going to realize that that's not true. And when you do, if you follow, if you do this exact experiment, you're going to find out that people around you feel differently about you and you can build a great relationship with a stranger in 45 minutes or less. In fact, probably even less than that. But sure. so what he did was he had 54 grad students asked each other questions and he got 54 people that were complete strangers and they didn't know each other. And he sat them down across the table and he had them ask 36 questions. Okay. And the questions became much more revealing, right? He'd ask questions like, tell me about your favorite summer job and why it was. And then, you know, like one of the ninth or 10th questions was tell, tell three things that you like about your partner right now you know, of a okay. person sitting across the table. And I mean, you just met this person. So you have no information other than the eight other questions they gave you. Interesting. Wow. And you had to say these things, right? Sure. So at the end of 45 minutes, 30% of the people rated the relationship they just created with a stranger as the closest relationship in their life, right? And wow. these are grad students. These aren't people that are um, lonely, introverted, have no one around them. I mean, they have people in their group, they're in school, they have access to all this stuff. And so that's pretty dramatic. 30% of the people rated it, the relationship with a complete stranger as the closest relationship in their life, right? And they replicated this thing dozens of times over the years. And, and this is 97. This is pre-social media, right? This is sure. not where you had access to everything online. So it's a whole different era. And the results were that high even back then. Wow. So imagine what you could do if you had this in a business setting, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I give people a list of questions. There's a couple ways of doing it. I created it where there are everyone answers a different question. Sometimes okay. what people do is they stick to several questions and everyone in the group answers those questions. And you go in groups of anywhere from four to 12 people okay. and you just go in a circle. You answer the question for a minute. Um, you can extend it to two if you want, but okay. that's it. 
And at the end, everyone says three things that they learned um, from people in the group, right? And so there's public affirmation, and people have to learn and stay engaged because otherwise, if they're like not in paying attention, they're going to be on the spot. Right. Well, if you do this, not only in the group, what you'll see, as I just did this in a conference a week ago, people get louder and louder in the room till it's the noise is like white noise because it's so loud. Interesting. And people's body language, everyone starts to go get closer to each other. They lean in more. They're more animated. They're laughing. They're positive as each question goes on. And the people who put it on, I said, watch, this is exactly what will happen. And just like clockwork, it happened exactly the same. And when you do this over a large group of people, what will happen is as long as the other people know that they're a part of the exercise, it translates across different groups, right? So if you have a, a hundred people or 200 people, other people in other groups will interact with you the same way as the people in your group do. Interesting. And I did this at Google and, you know, one of the anecdotes that happened, because this is a group of a pretty large group, was people in other groups that were from India talked to people in the U.S. And the, the counterpart that book, but it was in a different group from them and asked them that they were going to come over here and plan on going on vacation with each other. Right. Or at least spending a few days okay. with their families. Interesting. Right? Sure. So all of that starts a whole other conversation. Right. And now you have people bringing things up more engaged. Right. And if I do this at a conference, what, what do I, if I do in the beginning, what do you see engagement for the entire event goes through the roof? People are way happier. They give way more positive views. They want to come back because now they've met people in the beginning that they know more, they care about, they don't feel like a stranger and they engage more. Well, the same thing happens at work, right? If you're doing that people at work, now you get much more excited because now you're creating way better relationships, right? And I've done this with people who know each other exceptionally well, who believe that they do, and they learn information every time that they all say, I had no idea that that person went through that experience. And the power in the group is not just um, uh, like one of the groups I originally did, there was two people that were like quasi arch enemies or two women who just hated each other. Okay. I mean, and that's not putting it mildly. Right. So sure. they were in this larger group and the question um, came around and everyone was asked the same question. It was about, you know, tell me about the greatest loss you've experienced in the last five years. Okay. Right. So it's a pretty deep form of a question. Sure. And one of the people mentioned, that they had one of their pets died. That was a pa- family pet that they owned for, a, you know, I don't know, 20 years, a dog. Sure. And someone else mentioned their mother dying, right? The other woman did. Yeah. Well, after the session, I watched and they started talking to each other, like friendly. And they went out to lunch that week. And I found out a month later, they were actually friends. Wow. It's- and the funny thing about it is that everyone listening to this, I mean, it's obvious that a dog and a parent dying are completely different, right? Sure. I mean, like, and, and fundamentally, they must have understood this. But what they understood, even at a deeper level, was they both felt lost. Sure. And they both realized that they were humans, that all the things that they probably did not agree with, that that's one thing. But they humanized each other. And now they find a deeper level to connect on, right? Where they knew that feeling and emotion. And then it trumped everything else that had gone on. And they let it all go. And they started talking about all the things that they did agree on, right? Sure. And then what, you know, and then I, you know, I don't really know their working relationship right now. But I can only imagine how much that that benefited from having that engagement, right? So you can do all this stuff. And the other thing about another little quick story is that um, the other thing I had people do, and I had I had some really conservative leadership team do this, and it worked out really well, is bring a picture. And I say conservative because they were really reticent to do this. Okay. And I said, try it. See what happens. And okay. so for a month, in every one of their staff meetings, they brought in a picture that was meaningful for them. Like and each one person, to sorry? Like each, each person. Okay, yeah. okay. Keep going. Sorry. So there was, there was, you know, there's 12 people. So it took 12 minutes, right. At an hour meeting, which was considerable, but I was like, look and see what happens. 
And so they had one minute to describe the picture, who was in the picture, and why that they had chosen it. Okay. Well, after four weeks, productivity, engagement, and satisfaction, and everything else, and helpfulness, and what had gone on in, during over the next week had gone through the roof. Interesting. And, right? And because people got to know each other, right? They didn't, they, all the stories they made up went down because they're like, wow, that, that, I, well, I never knew that about you. That's really great, right? And they started sharing more. Because the key with being vulnerable when you start sharing is no one wants to go first. But after someone goes first, then the other person's more vulnerable. And then the next person's more likely to get more vulnerable. And you keep doing that, right? Sure. And the Surgeon General did this. The last one under uh, President Obama did this in his staff meetings. Interesting. And he, I didn't even realize this. I read this in Harvard Business Review. So if someone wants to go to September um, of last year uh-huh. and look at the Harvard Business Review, you can look at his comments. And it's the single thing that he said revolutionized his staff meetings and made them extremely productive. And people rated his staff meetings um, as the, the, the meaning they love to go to more than any other one on Capitol Hill. Interesting. Right? Uh, and, which is pretty, and he credits that with most of the reason why it was, which also I think tells you, right? So you can create psychological safety by doing these things. And the great thing is it's free, right? You don't even have to go out. There's nothing really involved. It's showing a picture, right? So you just have to get people to be vulnerable and start sharing who they are and what their experiences, their challenges, their hopes, their dreams with other people. And you get massive productivity increases. And it only makes sense because you're going to work, you're going to help someone at 11 o'clock at night, but you're not going to help just anyone. You're going to help someone you care about and vice versa. So the psychological safety is core. And what the problem is in corporate America today is that when you look across websites for values, you just won't find it. Or even a Google who came up with a study doesn't have a process to really create it that I found very well because I was in the team and I did it and I didn't. And they were, they understood, I think, the concept, but not how to do it. And after they played the game, they loved it. And again, they used it and we were doing a team offsite and they asked all the other speakers for the rest of the few days. Mm-hmm. questions from the game before they started speaking and it said and the manager said that it increased engagement they got more out of the speakers and the off-site was much more successful and i didn't even tell them to do this they just took it and ran with it right they just thought to themselves well, why don't we apply this ourselves right so that was really smart and look what happened so you do all these things and you can do this if you're a salesperson, right? During your first meeting with a prospect saying, Hey, I want to get to know you a little bit better. You know, I've got this fun game, right? Let's play a couple questions. Sure. And everyone loves to play games and people I have doing this. And what happens? You start building trust. You start building rapport much more. So the likelihood of closing that deal increases significantly, right? If you do this with any third party at the workforce or you're working in business development and have to do coding or whatever for a team it's the same thing it doesn't matter right sure so all this stuff kind of works based around that foundation it's just that people aren't prioritizing it and aren't taking the time sure so how does the like kind of all the stuff we talked about tie into what you what you're doing with kind of or what you did in the book and and what you're doing with the podcast so in the book, it was a lot of relationship building. And okay. in the, in the in, in my book, Social Wealth, is more about trying to help people build better business relationships by getting them environments that are with people that they're going to connect with on a deeper level and then how to start asking questions and doing things okay. that will elicit more opportunities for you to do that. Because there's an art and science behind it. Sure. And if you do things you can be much more productive and you can meet many more people that are best suited for you and also people that could help you and vice versa, right? That you can help. And so that's it there. And, and, And the podcast is really just taking, getting into what people have done successfully and translating that back out into the real world, right? It's having conversations with executives, and other people sharing their ups and downs 
and getting at the core of what made them successful, what they believed were drivers, what were their biggest challenges and roadblocks. Sure. And so then people can take those and leverage those and understand, you know, one, that they're human, that they're not some person who had this all figured out. Yeah, that they totally. were just, I love that. You, you know, yeah. yeah, all the all the things that dispel a lot of the myths. Because again, you know, when I work with clients, I mean, in some successful ones at different, you know, different points in their career, but sure. even the most successful ones, a lot of the problems go on is, I've asked them, I said, so how many people have ever asked you about your darkest day, about the first year of sure. you working and the lowest point and what that felt like and where you were and what went on? And what you'll find is that they either no one has ever asked them that question yeah. or only a few people, sure. right? Yeah. And I, that's shocking to me, right? And we're talking, I'm talking about some super successful people that have asked this too. Sure. And I can't believe it answers that low. And here's the problem with that. Then everyone treats it like an ESPN highlight or a Facebook news feed, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. You don't, you, all you do is look at the end, right? Yep. And if I look at endpoint of any, anyone listening there, if any of all people did, if, if whatever successful thing you've done, think about that. What's the most successful thing you've done? I don't care what it is. Sure. Even if it's graduating from high school, right? Sure. Someone looked at the end of that and they're like, oh, well, that's great that you graduated from high school. Like, you must be really happy. That's a great accomplishment. And like, you're like, of course, but you didn't know how late I had to stay up at night studying yeah. or all the other challenge I did, or I had to work during high school or I had to take care of my family. I mean, like all these other things that go in that paint the true picture of it rather than just the end point. Sure. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I that that is interesting, and that's I, I like when people will openly share that stuff, kind of with me or on the show as as well, because I find that where you truly learn about somebody's kind of journey, or even help you through your own journey with whatever you're doing, yeah. right? And this is a good. You talk a lot about kind of success tied to living with uncertainty and and kind of managing that. Yep. Do you want to dive a little bit deeper into that? Because your thoughts on this, I, I 100% agree with, but I, I want to get that kind of out to the listener as well. Well, you know, I, I think the, you know, the line that I always use in, in when I'm chatting with my clients about managing uncertainty, right, of doing new things is that the key that you'll see the most successful people doing, right? And this is a learned behavior, okay. not something innate that you do over the course of your lifetime. But the more uncertainty that you can live with in a healthy way, the more successful you'll be. Okay. Because you'll be able to start taking many more leaps of faith. Okay. And you won't be obsessed with the landing. Because okay. you'll know that if you try something new, you're most likely not going to be successful on try number one, right? Sure. And you're going to have to pivot off it, take the evidence, learn from it, and it'll probably take you several pivots in order to get to the next place. Sure. And that could take months, that could take years, that could take decades. You never know. It sure. depends on the situation. So I think that's really the difference is can you take the leap of faith and not be attached to the outcome, right? Okay. The original outcome, right? Yeah. Because what happens then is you have a scarcity mentality. You grade yourself ruthlessly, right? Yeah. On what goes on. Like they did this study and I was, I cannot believe this. This was a result that executives that use the word failure um, in their experience, talking about what had gone on, yeah. like were significantly less successful in their career than executives who didn't use that one word, right? They'd use it as a lesson learned, sure. right? And significantly less successful, right? And, and they get hired significantly less in a process. And these were CEOs, right? So they looked at them at that high level. Sure. So they were 50% less apt to get hired if they used failure um, as part of describing their career. And the reason is, is because you, this is all about adaptability. You have to be able to roll with the punches and take the information and pivoting it 
because then you don't get attached to the past, right? You look at it as a history lesson. You look at it objectively as saying, look, I did this maneuver. It didn't work. I learned from it. And then I went on and did the next thing. And so they're not emotionally attached to that and they don't negatively apply it to themselves. Right. Sure. Which then leads you down a negative path. Right. So the CEOs that are successful and the executives are, they look at it like that and then roll with it. And these are people too, that they've looked at as I was reading this book called the CEO next door. I was reading this and they, even the CEOs, all of them had some crippling thing that they did, right? CEOs sure. who made major missteps, not something small, like board level, like almost getting fired oh, level things, right? Sure. And they were able to look at it and view it like this, and that made all the difference in the process, right? So I think as you're looking at uncertainty, you've got to realize that you're going to have to try a lot of things. They are not going to work. You're going to have to pivot from it. And you have to just learn from the lesson and move on, right? And sure. of course, there's going to be emotions. And yep. you're not going to be like, oh, this is okay that I had this massive blow up. But you have to feel the emotions, work through them quickly, and move on to the next side. Because otherwise, what will happen is it'll just hold you back and you'll be unable to take the next step. And that is not everyone going through the same thing you're going, sure. right? You're not alone. Every person, again, like I said before, the most successful teams make the most mistakes. They don't make the least. They make the most, right? And the teams that make the least mistakes are the least effective, performance-wise, efficiency, company-wise, and everything else. So this all goes into you just having to take more risks and innovation. That's why psychological safety is so important, because if you don't create it, you're not going to take the risk. Well, what happens, right? It's like the old line and it's a trite line, but it's like you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, it's a trite line, but it, it's true because you won't do the next thing. If you believe that it's a, you have to get it right. Yep. Cause it's just not going to happen. Yeah. It, it, you just won't. It, it's kind of like, and, and well here, what are your thoughts on this? It, it's almost like, when you're learning a sport as a child, right? Like everybody through gym class or through friends, like had to have least tried, you know, certain sports growing up just because it was like mandatory in school. And like, if you think about when you first started either like learning to play basketball or baseball or soccer or hockey or even something like skiing like or snowboarding, like you're terrible at it the first time you try. Maybe the odd person's really good just naturally, but like, but over time, if you if you enjoy something, you will keep at it, right? Like if you're snowboarding yeah. and you fall, like the first five, six, ten times you go snowboarding, it's awful. Like you basically spend most of your day on your knees or your bum or and everything hurts yeah. because you're falling constantly. But it's like it's the people that get up and try it and actually finally figure it out that become successful at it. And I think it's the same thing with kind of like doing a startup or business or anything. It's it's the same mentality, agree. right? And like I think some people don't think of it like that. It's like you've already been through these challenges. They're just different now. It's like instead of learning a sport, yeah. now you're learning how to like build a company or, or your business. Is Completely is that like agree. a interesting way to put it? Oh, I agree because here's the thing. I think the other problem is is that if you're on a, if you're snowboarding and you're, you see other people, you don't feel like you're alone. Yeah. But the problem in business, if you do it and you mess up in your job, yeah, you feel like you're all alone. Yeah, and whenever we feel like we're all alone, what happens is, is when we make the mistake, yeah, we start to feel disconnected. Sure. Right. Yeah. And when you start feeling disconnected with someone, what's the next step? You start withdrawing. Yeah. You start beating yourself up more. Yeah. You become much more emotionally detached, yeah, right? It's draining. You don't become as engaged, right? Yeah. I mean, that's when you even take a like look at another parallel example, like most people who are getting divorced. I mean, a, most of it when you look at it, it isn't because they woke up one day and decided it's not working. Yeah. They haven't been engaging with each other for years, right? Sure. And yeah. most of the times that's what the biggest problem is. It's not that someone's less attracted to the other person it's because they're not talking, they're not engaging, they're not having deep conversations, they're not sharing. So then the other person's doing whatever they're doing. And then all of a sudden you wake up 
and you make all these stories to rationalize why you are where you are today sure. rather than dealing with the hard truth, sure. right? Yeah, that's and interesting. I think that the other part of it is it, it, this also goes back to a lack of truth-telling okay. in organizations as a whole, and I think that's a huge problem. And, and an easy example of this is that – so. I started to think about when people are managing other, cause I get people coming all the time. Like how do I manage teams? Sure. How do I manage other people? Well, and the biggest challenges is one, you've got to create psychological safety, but after that you have to have some mechanisms where you engage with people that start to get a feedback loop where you can tell people the truth and are accountable because then what happens is, is you optimize performance, you optimize engagement, collaboration, and how you do that as a manager is pretty easy, although it's difficult in the beginning, is you want to start being able to figure out where your relationship is with your employee. And you can even do this with your manager, too. You can sure. use this um, both up and down, right, and yeah. sideways with colleagues. And you want to know exactly where your relationship is because then you can work on it and you then can get it to the highest level. So what I like to tell people to say is, you know, um, I'd like to know how you rate our relationship on a scale of one to 10, one being poor and 10 being extraordinary. Sure. And then why? And what's important about that is that's a very vulnerable question, right? Yep. And it becomes difficult sometimes for the other person to ask, but what you're, you can say to them is saying, look, I need to know because I, I need to create a great working relationship with you because I can't be successful and it's going to be difficult for you if we both don't. But if we do, sure. we can really create great things in this organization together. And I'm committed to making this the best relationship that I can, but I don't know what I don't know. Sure. Right. And yeah, then interesting. they'll give you, right. Then they'll, then they'll give you whatever answer it is. And then they'll tell you why. And the great thing about why is now you can push back, right? Or you may have in your mind, right, that this month it's an eight and next month it's a three, but the reason is is they're upset because you um, argued with them about something in a meeting. Sure. Well, then that helps you figure out, well, I need to handle how I engage with them publicly differently, right? And sure. then you can either apologize, you can do something else. And then the last question you ask, right, is how can I move this closer to a 10? Sure. Because then that person is giving you very specific instructions on what to do, and you can follow up with them on a monthly basis, right? Mm -hmm. And even quarterly, if it's some different people, right? Yep. That maybe it's your manager or someone else, right? Yeah. But with your employee, it's important to do it monthly to gauge, and then that's really helpful. Now, with your employee, the next set of questions you can ask them is, so how would you rate your work performance over the last month on a scale of one to 10? And you can fill in the blank. Work performance could be how is your sales engagement going with clients, right? Sure. Or how is the leadership of your team going, if that's the core question. And then they'll give you a number. And then you can say, well, why do you give yourself that number? Well, yep. if you're a manager, if they give themselves a 10 and you know it's a four based on the data you've looked at, you can say, well, I give you a four based on these reasons. What do you think about that? Interesting. And you engage this farther and then you can say to them, okay, well, what would, what are you going to do differently this month to move it closer to a 10? What information or help do you need or don't you have that would be really helpful? Right. Sure. And then you can ask that question too and start digging into this. So now when you have one-on-ones once in a month, with them or, you know, one time during the month, you can monitor them and everyone's on the same page. You don't have yeah. people harboring resentment. Sure. You don't have people saying, I hate my boss, because if you did tell them that, you could say, well, you know what? I'm giving you a, a five because I, I don't think you like me. And then they might say, well, that's not true at all. I really do, right? It's sure. just how I engage with people. And they're like, oh, really? And then you have a conversation and then that will get better, right? Yeah. And Right. So when you start doing stuff like that, the truth telling mechanism gets people being much more honest. Yeah. So you don't have all of these back channel conversations. You don't have people not telling each other the truth. No one knows where they're at. Right. Yeah. And all these stories get passed along and stories that you're making up in your mind that aren't really true. But the only way to dispel them is to have real conversations. 
And so as a manager, that's what you need to do to optimize the performance on your team is to get all of that happening so you know what's going on and you know people's commitment. Because if you ask these questions and someone isn't consistently delivering and they're telling you they're going to make changes and they're not, well, that's a pretty good idea that probably person needs to be moved on, right? Yeah. Or, no. you know, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you. But we're sadly out of time. We could probably go on for another hour, but yeah. let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, the book, the podcast, your speaking and everything else and the game. Sure. Yeah. So you can go to my website, jasontroy.com and it's jasontreu.com to go get all those items. And if you want to go to cards against mundanity, you can, it'll, get you the website where you can download um, the card game for free and I give you instructions how to use it and how to leverage it and obviously you can contact me if you have a question on the game but it's pretty easy to play and there's a lot of ways that you can you can use it in your everyday um, job and then there's also coaching services for people for individuals for teams and organizations as they need it or want it. Perfect, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Yep, thanks. Thanks, man. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. To join the free community, buy some merch, sponsor the show, or sign up for the newsletter, please visit the website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.